health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Doug Knoll. Doug was born partially deaf, nearly blind, crippled, and super smart. All buzzkills for the girls in his early years. He graduated from Dartmouth College, earned his law degree, and was a ferocious civil trial lawyer for 22 years. Then he went back to school to become a peacemaker. Since he left his lucrative law practice in 2000, Doug has devoted his life to understanding human conflict. His groundbreaking work in de-escalating anger and potentially violent confrontations has transformed the lives of thousands. In the episode, Doug explains why de-escalation is a critical first step in any conflict, how to calm an angry person in just 90 seconds or less, why emotional invalidation is extremely problematic, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, Dry Farm Wines. Did you know that alcohol manufacturers aren't required to post ingredients or nutrition facts on their bottles? That's how they're able to sneak sugar and other additives into their products. Fortunately, Dry Farm Wines has come up with a solution. Their natural wines are lab tested to ensure they're sugar free, lower in sulfites and alcohol, and also free from other industrial additives. Since I've grown accustomed to drinking natural wine, even the top rated expensive conventional wines can give me headaches and make me feel kind of gross. If you've never tried Dry Farm Wines, you're going to be immediately hooked by the flavor and quality of their products, as well as their top-notch customer service. To get a bottle of Dry Farm Wines for just a penny, visit dryfarmwines.com slash thehealthinvestment or click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Doug. Enjoy. Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Doug. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Well, thanks, Brooke. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I We both belong to a platform where, that connects podcast guests with hosts and I scroll through a lot of them and I don't reach out to a ton of people because I'm very picky about who I bring on here. But your information was really fascinating to me about anger management. And I just can't wait to dive into this topic. It's very unique versus a lot of the other messages out there. Um, But I would love to hear how you got into this work. I think you say you became a lawyer turned peacemaker. Can you share a bit about your background and how you ended up turning to that? Yeah, I have a pretty interesting background. I was born blind, nearly deaf, crippled, 
a left-handed, bad teeth. I mean, I got in the wrong line for everything <laughs> when wow. I was born, except I was gifted with a superior intellect. And I had a really miserable upbringing, even though I grew up in affluence in Southern California. Uh, people just didn't know how to deal with a child like me with all my problems. So I had um, a lot of outward success, but not a lot of inward happiness. Ultimately, though, I was did well enough to, to be admitted to Dartmouth College. I graduated from there with a degree in English, came back to California and went to law school. And when I graduated from law school, I moved to Central California because I wanted to live close to the mountains. And for the, that, for the next 22 years, I was a, a civil trial lawyer trying large business and commercial cases, and usually involving a lot of money and a lot of complexity. Along the way, I picked up the martial arts, and on my right around my 40th birthday, I was awarded my second degree black belt. And about the same time, my teacher said, you've got to go learn Tai Chi. So that's what I did. I started studying Tai Chi. And Tai Chi has two really interesting paradoxes. The one is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. So the idea is soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. Well, that didn't com uh, really <laughs> compute too well with me, <laughs> being a hardcore trial lawyer and a second degree black belt. But I kept studying. And then one day in the late 1990s, mid-career, I was in my late 40s, um, <clears throat> I was cross-examining somebody in a courtroom. And the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? And so after that trial, I was, had a vac vacation schedule, and I spent the time thinking about how many people I'd really served as a trial lawyer and could only count five people that I thought had really, five clients that really came through the process better off than when they went in. And I said, I can't do this anymore. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And when I came back after the vacation, I heard a new public, I heard a, a public service announcement for a new master's degree program in peacemaking and complex studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University. And that caught my attention. And ultimately, I enrolled so that for three years, I was a full-time master's degree student, a three-quarters time law professor, and a full-time trial lawyer. And, oh, wow. and I began to have a number of discussions with my partners who were not happy about the peacemaking stuff. <laughs> They'd rather have me be a, a hardcore trial lawyer making a lot of money for, for everybody. And I, I just finally, in, in – uh, Late October of 2000, I just gave one week's notice and walked out, left $10 million on the table and walked out and started my own peacemaking practice. And I've never looked back. So that's kind of how the short version of how it all started. Wow. Yeah, I can imagine in your lawyer sphere, the courtroom sphere, when you're saying I'm trying to become more peaceful now and adopt this new skill set, that's, that's not really in alignment with what they were wanting you to do. No, not at all. And And... My life was not in alignment. You know, on the inside, I had one kind of life, a spiritual life and a, you know, a life of service. And on the outside, I was just had to live this life as a trial lawyer, which is not a, it's a hard way to make a living, but, it, and it's not a bad way to make a living, but I was just not in alignment with, with that kind of work. And I was very successful, but being successful does not equate to happiness. Hmm. So... I made the shift and I've never looked back. I don't make nearly as much money as I made in those days, but I don't care. Money, I've learned the money is just, just not that important. Yeah. I know that 
for the past 10 years, then you've trained thousands of murderers yes. serving life sentences, I believe, to be more peaceful. Can you talk about it's called the Prison of Peace Project? Right, right. right. In 2010, well, actually, in, 2000, in August of 2009, my, uh, my dear friend and colleague, Laura Coffer, received a letter from a woman serving a life sentence without possibility of parole in what was then the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California. And she was at her mailbox and picked up the phone and called me because she knew, one, I was a secondary black belt. Two, she knew, of course, we're both mediation trainers and law professors. And three, uh, you know, that, that prison is about an hour and 15 minutes from where I live. And so she called me and said, read me the letter and said, what do you think? And I said, we should do this. So we spent the six, next six months working through the prison bureaucracy to get permission to start. And in April of 2010, we started Prison of Peace with 15 women, ages roughly 65 down to about 30 of all different ethnicities. And we devised a very unique curriculum for taking uh, incarcerated people from ground zero with no knowledge and no skills to becoming powerful peacemakers and mediators. And it started, we were in the women's prison for three years, then it was repurposed to a men's prison. And we worked in the men's prison for three years. And we were about to give up when the state finally saw the value of what we were doing and started to fund us. And today, we've been in over 15 California prisons, a prison in Connecticut, 12 prisons in Greece, and we've got startups in Italy and in Kenya, Nairobi. And we during the pandemic, um, we were shut down, of course. We couldn't go in and do in-person programming, so we had distance learning projects going on. But we we filmed our we hired a film crew, Hollywood film crew, and and uh, filmed our entire curriculum. So so later this year, prison the Prison of Peace curriculum, which is a forty-hour curriculum meant to be delivered over a year's time, uh, can be available to anybody in the world. And oh, wow. here. Here in California, the results have been pretty profound. We've had over 8,000 of our students released on parole over the years, and not, we don't have one report of recidivism. To our knowledge, none of our students have ever reoffended. Wow. So it's not just to become more peaceful on the inside. It's when you leave as well to lead a different type of life. That's right. Most of, most of our students are doing a lot of community service work. They're taking what they learned from us as peacemakers and they're translating that into their communities. Uh, they're even teaching their children the skills that they learned from us, you know, a decade ago. They're, one of our very first women uh, called Laura one day, I think a couple of months ago and said, could you mind having my husband and kids over for the day? I've got to take a break. And, and Laura's like a mother, second mother to her. And she said, sure. And, when the kids were over there, Laura was having a great time, and she reported to me the kids were they, they were ethic labeling each other, they were reflecting back each other's emotions, and here they are, five and six years old, two little boys, mm. and we were thinking, wow. wow, how cool is that? That that Anna has taken the skills that we've taught her, and she's now passing it on to her kids. Hmm. Why is it so important for me, for listeners, to try to become a more peaceful person? Well, we know that stress is a killer, right? I mean, you, you work, you're a nutritionist. So you see the you see the results of stress in your clients all the time. And to the degree that you can have peace in your life, one, you're happier, you feel more fulfilled, you're more joyful, and you're a heck of a lot healthier. Hmm. And so, pieces, pieces, and there's there there are just all kinds of studies that relate 
the absence of conflict to higher quality of life, from the ACES study in San Diego, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, to some really interesting studies in Europe that show that families that have endemic conflict have much, much higher comorbidity later in life. People die from conflict. So learning how to cultivate a peaceful way of being is critical. And unfortunately, we don't live in a culture that promotes that. Does being peaceful mean you're not, like you said, not having a lot of conflict in your home? So is it mostly not having conflict with others? Or is it also a lot of internal work as well? It's, it's, it's everything. But, but, but what I've learned is that when you learn just a, a one or two really basic skills, you really, it comes down to this, one insight and one skill. And when you get the insight and you master the skill, everything changes. All your inner work changes. You become much more emotionally intelligent, emotionally competent. Your relationships change. You know, you end fights and arguments forever in your life. Um, and I, I know that sounds grandiose, but it's, it's, the, it's the truth. It's, and it's because of neuroscience. Um, I discovered in 2005 in a very difficult mediation I was working in a process for calming people down very quickly. And two years later, a, a brain scanning study came out of UCLA that showed exactly why what I had discovered works, what's going on in the brain. We are literally hardwired for peace. All we need to do is trigger it, trigger the brains the right way, and we can move out of rage and anger and into peace within 90 seconds. And every human being, every human brain is designed to do this. Okay, yeah. So tell me about that, because that's what really got me hooked on having <laughs> you on is you say how to calm an angry person in 90 seconds or less. You talk about that in your book, De-Escalate. Right. So how do you do that? Well, it, it's a, it's pretty easy to describe. It, it takes a little bit more to master it because, like any, it's like riding a bike you, or, or learning how to ice skate. You got to practice it to get good at it. But the, but the basic process is to first of all, when you're confronted with an angry person, whether it's a little kid, a child, or an adult, your partner, uh, spouse, or whoever, coworker, um, ignore the angry words. You've got to turn those angry words into white noise. You've heard the angry words before, so you're not going to. There's no news here, right? You've heard all. The, you, you've heard people cussing at you before. It's not. This is not anything new. So you can afford to ignore the words. And when you do that, two things happen. One, you are much, much less likely to become triggered yourself, become highly reactive because of early childhood programming. And two, you free a bandwidth to do the next two steps. So number one, ignore the words. Number two. You're going to read the emotions of this angry person. And we have an innate ability going back millions of years to automatically and efficiently read the emotions of other humans. And that people don't understand that. Well, there's a reason why people don't understand it. But, but, the, but the evolutionary biology shows us that humans only be able, were able to communicate with verbal language less than 230,000 years ago. Mm. We've only been talking for 230,000 years, probably even less than that. Um, but how do hominids communicate for the millions of years they've been on the planet if they didn't have words? They communicated through emotions. And so our brains evolved to be able to pick up the nuance of meaning 
just by paying attention to the other person. But here's, here's the problem we face. We've been lied to for 4,000 years by theologians and uh, philosophers who have told us that what makes us human is rationality. That's its rationality, our reasoning ability that separates us from other animals. That's, and that's absolutely false. It's a lie. What neuroscience has, is teaching us now is that it's the opposite is true. It's our emotions that make us human, not our rationality. In fact, we can't even be rational unless we're emotional first. But we have this prejudice against emotions. And so as a result, this innate ability to read other people's emotions lies dormant because we're told that emotions are bad. We're told that emotions make us weak. We're told that emotions are irrational. That, you know, they, you're not an adult if you're emotional. And, you know, we're constantly invalidated as children when we have emotional experiences. So we never really learned this ability, but it's very simple. All you have to do is sit. You've got this angry person spewing at you, right? Spitting mad. <laughs> and you sit there, you're ignoring the words, and you just silence your mind. And within a second or two, emotions will start coming into your head. And then all you have to do is the third step, which is reflect back the emotions with a simple use statement. So, Brooke, if you were really mad at me for some reason, I would say, Brooke, you're really angry. You're frustrated. You don't feel appreciated. You don't feel supported. You feel completely disrespected. And you're really anxious and concerned and worried about this. And the whole thing just makes you really, really sad. And you feel completely abandoned and betrayed. So when somebody reflects back your emotional experience, like I just did with you, assuming you were in that state, some amazing things happen in the brain. The first thing that happens is that the emotional centers of the brain, including the amygdala, amygdala um, are inhibited. They start to quiet down. And at the same time, the executive function in our brains, the part of this that allows us to make decisions and think clearly, called the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, becomes activated. And these are reciprocal actions. As the emotional centers of the brain are inhibited, the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex is activated, and this process takes less than 90 seconds, and they go from rage to calm in 90 seconds, and you can't help yourself. It's an unconscious process. Hmm. And I would imagine you're, yeah, I would imagine as the non-angry person, your tone would have to be a certain way, and saying that statement back, the you statement, because I'm thinking if... If you say it in a certain way, can it be misconstrued if you're like, well, you're really frustrated and angry? You have to kind of well, if you, a very calm Yeah, tone. you don't have to use a calm voice. In fact, in a more advanced training, I teach people how to match tone. But uh, but you don't want to – you're not you're using the use statement as a simple matter of fact. This is what you're experiencing. It's not, oh, you, you awful – you're just being stupid. You're emotional. You're angry. You're pissed off. You know, where you're being snide or sarcastic or, or judgmental. You're not doing any of that. What you're doing with the use statement is simply reflecting back their experience in just being just reflecting back what they're experiencing. And that's what's effective. And when you do it that way, you literally calm people down in less than 90 seconds, two year olds to, to 90 year olds. It doesn't matter. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I would imagine that would take some practice, though, because well, uh, the way I teach it. You know, I, I have online courses that people can take. We can, we can talk about that later. But I, I've got online courses and I do coaching, you know, do trainings and stuff like that. The, the, the way I tell my students to learn this stuff is just start out in very low-risk social 
environments. So where the risk of error is very low. And what's the perfect lab for me? Starbucks. Because <laughs> you can walk into Starbucks and go up to the barista and order your thing and then look at the barista and say, hey, you, you look really, you're really happy today. And of course they're happy. They're Starbucks people, right? Unless, <laughs> unless they're fighting for their union, union rights, I guess. But, but most of the time, the, the, the people, Starbucks people are hired because they're people people and they're happy. And, they'll, and that barista will just go off on you and say, yeah, I'm really happy. And they'll start chatting you up because you're the first person that probably ever that's validated who they are as a human being. And you, you, you observe. You, you, you ethic label them. So this is called ethic labeling. You label their emotion. You're happy. And then you put on your metaphorical lab coat and you watch what happens. And then you do it in the restaurant with a server. And you do it at, at, at Sprouts, you know, or, or Whole Foods or Bonds or wherever. And at the checkout person. And you just read their emotion. Give them one emotion. What's the dominant emotion that's going on with this person right now? And you practice in these low-risk social situations with perfect strangers for two or three weeks until you start to see the pattern. And once you see the pattern, then you'll understand how this works, and you'll be able to start moving it into your personal life. Hmm. So then let's say you're moving it into your relationship um, with your partner. Is it that both people kind of start to practice that? And then is there any... I think you had mentioned that you just kind of get rid of conflict. Like, is there other, ever a time then when there's not the angry person or the person's still angry, but the other person's just a better kind of listener and responder? Well, if you're dealing with somebody who's chronically angry, then that's a person who probably is going to need some kind of professional help. But if it's just the usual kind of reactive anger where we get frustrated or just get, you know, angry with a partner, then this, this stuff works really, really well because it will calm them down and they will feel deeply validated and they will be grateful that you have listened them into existence. Mm. Now, in a, in a relationship, you've got to be get very careful uh, in the beginning because all relationships have implicit rules about them and they especially have implicit rules about intimacy. What's, per, what's permitted and what's not permitted. And most people don't even know that there are all kinds of implicit rules that govern their relationship. But it, it's the way it is. And, and if, you, if you really spent some serious time talking with your partner, you could probably say, okay, what, what, what's, what, are, the rules of our, what are the rules of intimacy in our relationship? What, am I what are we comfortable with and what are we not comfortable with? So when you interject something new like this, you're changing the rules. And if you don't do it carefully, you can cause a lot of upset. So the way that I tell people to introduce it is to um, just do one, one emotion. You're really frustrated. Oh, Brooke, you're frustrated. And just drop it. Don't go any further than that. And wait and see how, what kind of reaction you get. And then if you get a, yeah, I am really frustrated, then you can go on. If you don't get any reaction at all, you drop it and you come back and try it again at another time. And so you slowly introduce it. Now, the, the other thing that happens is that you will all of a sudden become the go-to person that people want to talk to because you can listen them into existence. 
and you don't, your own needs aren't getting met. Now, now you need to be listened to, so what do you do? And so that means that you have to spread the word. And what I tell couples is get a copy of my book, Deescalate, and just put it out there where somebody can read it <laughs> and start picking up on what's going on. And, you know, sooner, sooner or later, people will get it and they'll start wondering what's going on and they'll want to start learning the, the skills. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at The Health Investment. Now, back to the episode. I guess as you're talking, sometimes it feels to me that if you don't, and this is probably totally wrong, but if you don't kind of address the anger as we've been taught to and just kind of like, this is not okay, how you're talking to me, or take the the approach we've maybe grown up with of like, you need to stop yelling at me, then maybe you're kind of saying it's okay to no. get mad at you? No, it, the, 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 approach, the approach is to de-escalate first and problem solve. When you, I see. When you say something like it's not appropriate, you should, you, uh, you know, it's not appropriate for you to be angry at me, this behavior is unacceptable. That's problem solving language. Got it. And if you so try you to problem if you try to, yeah, if you try to problem solve before you de-escalate, what are you going to do? You're going to just make it even worse. You're throwing gasoline yeah. in the fire. So the first thing you have to learn how to do is, is calm people down then engage in problem solving. And when people are calm, they will be willing to engage in problem solving. When they're escalated and angry, that's the last thing they want to do. Right. But that's the problem. I guess most of us. Everybody goes to problem solving too fast. <laughs> okay. Because that's what I was thinking. I was like, that's got to happen sometime. Right. But I feel like, every, like you're saying, everybody does that and in the heat of the moment. They do it. People go to problem solving too fast, one, because they don't know what else to do. But two, more importantly, to, to soothe their own anxiety over the other person's upset. Mm-hmm. So early problem solving is a selfish, self-soothing mechanism. I see. Okay. So stay as calm as possible. Ignore the words. Read the emotions. Name the emotion. And then you can problem solve. Correct. And everybody's calm. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So this, I mean, obviously could work with a partner, a spouse. Um, can you explain how this might work in a job? Like if you're a boss, for example, or same thing. How, how does this play out? Yeah. Same thing. You got a boss that gets angry. You just, you affect label the boss. You're angry. You're frustrated. You don't feel supported. You feel disrespected. You know, you don't feel like anybody's you feel feeling betrayed. I mean, they're all the common emotions. I mean, that everybody experiences, and and the boss calms down, and now you can problem solve. All right, so so what do we need to do to fix this? But you do that only after you've got the boss calm down. And here's the thing: if, if you if you if you're good at this and practice it, guess guess who gets the promotion? Yeah. <laughs> 
right. you know, if you're the person that can calm things down and, and can manage strong, strong people and difficult people, you're going to get promoted because mm-hmm. you've got a, you got a set of skills that nobody else has. Right. I know you talk about how emotional invalidation is problematic. So does that basically mean that you're invalidating people's emotions by jumping to problem solving too quickly and yes, not that, meaning the emotion? That is, that is a very common form of emotional invalidation, but it's even more insidious than that. Do you remember when you were a little girl and you were running for two or three years old, you were running around outside and you fell down and you scraped your knee and you started to cry? What were you told? Stop crying. Uh-huh. Stop. You're okay. Uh-huh. It doesn't hurt. Yeah. Oh, it's not that big a deal. Oh, it, you know, it's just a little sting. Put on your big girl panties. Stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. And for boys, it's the same, only worse. What are you being told? Really? You're, you're not, your emotion isn't valid. Correct. You're a bad person because you're feeling emotions. Mm-hmm. That's what you're being taught as a child. Every parent does it. They don't even know they're, they are. What parents don't know is they are destroying their children's brains because literally from the age of 18 months until about six years of age, the emotional centers of the brain are maturing and they have to go through a certain developmental process. And, and children have to learn how to create emotions and learn, learn how to manage their emotions. If you shut down that process by telling a kid not to feel or only to feel positive emotions, but you can't feel negative emotions. You're basically destroying the brain's ability to develop. And that's why 98% of all adults are emotionally dysfunctional. Hmm. And you see it all the time in your work, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean a lot of eating disorders come from people who are emotionally dysfunctional. Yeah. And it, it all comes back to how they were treated as children. They were emotionally invalidated as children. Even the most loving parents do this, and they don't even know they're doing it. And there's this, I mentioned the study before, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study out of San Diego, California, the Kaiser Permanente, Kaiser Foundation study. It's chilling. It shows that children, children who are emotionally abused in this way are a thousand times more likely to be drug addicted, to die of stuff like cancer or diabetes or chronic uh, obstructive pulmonary disease or any other number of other horrible diseases early in life, they're far more likely to be divorced. It all comes down to emotional safety. And if children are not brought up in an emotionally unsafe environment, and most children are not, then they're going to carry all of that into adulthood and they're going to suffer as a result of it. And one of the ways that they cope is by overeating, eating poorly which leads to obesity. I look around at the obesity epidemic going around us, and I see a lot of really emotionally unsafe people mm-hmm. who have been deeply abused, even though they thought they were living in loving families. Mm. So with kids, I am thinking of the, like when kids are very young, let's say two or three, it's hard to do that problem solving. Yeah, you don't, but, but it, it's, it's hard to do the problem solving, but it's not hard to do the ethic labeling. Okay. I have reports of parents who are learning these skills with two-year-olds, two-and-a-half-year-olds, and, and they said t- the tantrum stopped and went away after four months, never came back. They've never had a tantrum with a child again. And the studies show, the research shows, that parents who li- label the emotions of their children, starting at about two or three years old, by the time those kids are 9, 10, and 11 years old, they're two grade levels ahead of their peers academically. They're more emotionally mature. They're more well-adjusted. 
and they're more resilient than any of their peers by orders of magnitude. Mm. So if a two or three year old, let's say, is throwing a tantrum in the grocery store Mm -hmm. because they can't get the cookies they want, you would just say, I see you're feeling very don't frustrated. Use, don't, <laughs> don't use your eye statement. <laughs> oh, sorry. You you are feeling very because yeah, oh, then the therapist really, therapist will say use eye statement. Yeah, well, they're all they're all wrong. They're, they're totally <laughs> wrong. I, I, my my niece just got her doctorate in psychology, and I mean, I just shake my head at the what the, how they're teaching grad psychologists today. I mean, it's it's just so wrong. Nobody's taken the time to study where these eye statements came from. And, and, and it came from Carl Rogers and Thomas Gordon, two psychologists in the mid-20th century, who Carl Rogers was a brilliant uh, psychologist, but he didn't know what he was doing. And Thomas Gordon started teaching I statements as a way of getting away from the blaming E statements. And all of their work was completely misconstrued in the human potential movement. And Rogers coined the term active listening in 1956, but all of their work was completely perverted and misunderstood until you get this really smarmy, passive voice, what I think you're feeling is or what I think you're hearing is all bullshit. Doesn't work. You're essentially ha- saying the same thing, but you're just saying I. But when you say I, you're one, you're taking the focus off the speaker. So you're no longer reflecting from the speaker's frame of reference. Two, you're in passive voice, which is voice of disconnection. Three, you're soothing your own anxiety over another person's upset. That's uh, why you okay. do it. And it's been it's been, it's taught in the therapy world. It's taught in the mediation world. It's all wrong. There's not one bit of science to support that any of that stuff works. Not one. And we all know from common experience that when somebody does that, they use an I statement on us. It all it does is make us angrier. We all know that. In fact, if it worked, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I'd be using it myself. <laughs> Yeah, and the fact true. that I was taught this stuff in my graduate program and, and discovered very quickly in higher level, intense, crazy conflicts where people were ready to shoot each other rather than sit down and talk. But the moment you start using an I statement, you, you've lost it. The, the game is over. Okay. And I was so, forced, forced to find something different. No I statement. So, okay. The so let's go back to the three year old in the supermarket going crazy because they can't get the Snickers bar or something. So you say, oh, Oh, Bobby, you're really frustrated. You're really angry. You want to smoke this bar and you can't have it, and it really makes you mad. That's all you have to say. And you're a little tired. Yeah. And you really want the candy bar and you can't have it. Yeah. And just you just feel like nobody loves you. Yeah. And you don't know what to do with yourself because you're so upset. Yeah. And then it's over with. That's all it takes right there. Oh, okay. So you just put it back and then keep... You just keep reflecting their emotions. Very simple emotions. Keep reflecting back. And as you reflect back, every time you do this, you're teaching that child what the emotions are. The child is learning how to modulate his or her own emotions. You have to lend your prefrontal cortex to your little toddler because her little prefrontal cortex is not developed. <laughs> and, and she needs help modulating her experiences and learning what emotions are. And that's what, you're, as a parent, that's your job. You're an emotional coach. But if you didn't have that coaching yourself as a child, then you're ill-equipped to be able to provide the same service to your child. And so this problem perpetuates generation after generation. Mm. So it, when the child is old enough to understand, then let's say everybody's calm in the car, do you have... 
a talk about it then? Of- yeah, I mean, you've got, a, you've got a child who maybe engages in some kind of misbehavior, and you look at it as a teaching moment, right? And so, so you calm the child down, de-escalate, and then you say, "All right." Was then you can have, then you can have a conversation at an age-appropriate conversation. Was that the right thing to do? What was the outcome of that? You know, wh- you know, what was what was your thought process as you went through that? Or next time, is there a better way to do this? Should there be consequences for what you did? And if so, what should those consequences be? Right. And that's so the that, way you go about disciplining a child and teaching. So them. You take the mistake and make it a teaching moment. Yeah, but it's just I'm hearing just over and over. Probably why your book is called Deescalate is that deescalation has to happen first. That's right. You we can't. Skip that part. You cannot take an emotional child, a child who's really upset or angry or depressed or sad or whatever it might be. You can't take that child and teach them anything right. until their prefrontal cortex is back online. And the only way you can do that is by labeling their emotions. Okay. Otherwise, you're uh, wasting your time. What if somebody wasn't raised to be a very empathic person? And as you're describing, maybe a lot of us weren't. Is this a skill you can learn later in life? Absolutely. Look at me. I was a mess. (laughs) I I, I really was. I mean, you asked me about my background. I told you about all the disabilities. I was an emotional mess for 40 years, 50 years. And once I learned, I discovered this and started studying, I said, what is going on here? It completely changed my life. So, yeah, anybody can learn this at any age. Our brains are hardwired for it. Okay. And then I know you also talk about our hidden genius, too. Mm -hmm. What is that? Is it the same for everyone? Yeah, emotions. Oh, okay. Our hidden genius are our emotions. How do you, you know, Albert Einstein said that he never came to any one of his discoveries through through logic or through reasoning. It was all through emotion thinking, through, through intuition. And association, and that's all emotional. That's all emotional processing. And and as as I said before, you know, our society privileges rationality over emotions. Emotions are bad and evil and weak and irrational. But really, it's emotions that make us human. And when we can start being self-aware of our emotions, then we're able to self-regulate, and we're able to change how we behave in any situation. We are no longer slaves to reactivity. As long as we deny our emotions and our emotionality, whenever we get into a situation that comes that allows us to be triggered from childhood programming, we're going to react like we did when we were six years old and we won't have any control over it. It's like a script running in our brain. But the moment we become self-aware of what we're experiencing, we can stop that script from running like a player piano roll. We can stop it from running and we can choose other behaviors. Yeah. And that's what it means to be a mature adult. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's fascinating. Um, I am so grateful for you sharing all of this with us today. I've never never had a conversation like this on the podcast or really <laughs> in life in general. So it's very well, cool. Well, that's, that's why I do this is because the, this, is, this is transformational work. It changes everything for everybody. And which is yeah. why I'm so happy to be able to share these ideas and have this conversation with you. And especially in your work, when you're yeah. dealing with people who have who can't lose weight and they got they got eating disorders, and fundamentally, it's not the eating disorder; it's the emotional disorder underneath it that's causing the problem. Mm-hmm. That they feel empty and worthless and shame and humiliation, so they use food to get the dopamine release off of 
the satiation from food and they overeat. Right. Yeah. No, it's applicable, I think, as you've shown to all areas of life. Yeah. Um, one of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Well, it means to invest in yourself. So health investment is is whole body, whole mind, whole spirit. So it's it's not only the food that you put in your mouth, it's how you exercise, it's how you spend your day, it's how much love and peace can you find in your life, how much joy can you find, how, how can you find the biggest investment you can make after you've taken care of your own needs is serving others. How do you find ways to create meaning in your life by serving others? All of those are different ways of, of health investment. I think what you brought up earlier in terms of your job is you were so successful, but not feeling aligned. Correct. I think that's such a cool word to use in terms of your own health investment of, you know, this isn't healthy for me to keep doing this if I don't feel like it's what I'm in alignment with any longer. Right. And, you know, I help more people in a week than I helped in 22 years as a trial lawyer. Wow. Yeah. But also, I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of stories about that, too. <laughs> I'm sure you're great to have at a dinner party. You can tell stories about all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I don't, I, it's interesting the dinner parties. I tend not to be the talker. I tend to be the listener. Mm, yeah. Well, that, that makes sense from your current line of work. Right. But I'm sure you've got a lot you could talk about. <laughs> Where can listeners follow and find you? I created a web page for your audience. And it is, let me get it real quick here. Let's see. There it is. Um, it's dougnoll.co, not com, co, dougnoll.co, forward slash healthy dash investment. Hmm. And that's a very little link. It'll go to it'll go to a page that I created earlier today for your audience uh, at my website dougnoll.com. And they uh, on that page, I know our conversation went quickly. So there's a free ebook that explains everything that we've been talking about today about how I discovered this, how it works, why it works, and how to practice it. And in addition, you can pick up a copy of my book Deescalate, my fourth book. And for those who are really want to get into this, there's a there's an online course, uh, the online deescalate video course, which will teach you how to deescalate any person in 90 seconds or less. And if you really want to go deep, um, you can get by my basic and emotional, my basic and advanced emotional competency courses, which teach you how to become emotionally competent. Oh um, wow! And so all of that's all of that is on the page, and then from that page, of course, anybody listening can navigate to the rest of my site, where I've got hundreds of articles, and YouTube's, and just a ton of resources out there. So you could spend days reading all, all about my work and what I do. Oh, awesome! I've never had a listener create a web page specifically for my audience, so this is very exciting. <laughs> well, there you go. So it's dougnoll.co forward slash healthy dash investment. Awesome. Well, I will put a link to that in the show notes. so Everybody can just click right through. And I just want to thank you so much again for being on here. I know that I will never think about uh, any type of conflict or argument the same. I will go first to this idea of de-escalation, de which I'm sure I'll need to practice, but um, really cool to have this kind of life-changing conversation. Well, thank you, Brooke. Thanks so much for being here. Have a good one. All right. Well, that's all for today. 
Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.